This editorially independent episode of New Retina Radio is supported by Alamera, a global pharmaceutical company whose mission is to be invaluable to patients, physicians, and partners concerned with retinal health and maintaining better vision longer. Alamera. We see more together. Welcome to New Approaches to Chronic Postoperative Inflammation, a new Retina Radio miniseries. My name is John Kitchens, and I practice retina at Retina Associates of Kentucky. On this miniseries, we'll examine management strategies for one of the most confounding and frustrating complications we encounter as retina specialists. I'm talking about postoperative inflammation. If you missed one of our first two episodes, catch them after you're done listening to this one. We've heard from Lisa Faya, Daniel Kernan, Avadea Dendanyak, and David Eichenbaum in the previous episodes. On this episode, we're going to review best practices for following up on chronic postoperative inflammation uh, patients. I'm joined today by two colleagues, Brian Doe from Retina Group of Washington in Washington, D.C. Hey, Brian. Hey, John. How are you? Awesome. Great. Thank you for joining us. And Dr. Katherine Talcott from the Cleveland Clinic in Ohio. Hey, Kat. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me. All right. Let's jump straight into our discussion. And Brian, I'll I'll start with you. You know, the first two episodes, we kind of covered the basics, but we're going straight to the deep end here with things. Um, Let's say you have a patient. I'm going to give you a theoretical patient, has had surgery, um, epiretinal membrane removal, and they've had postoperative edema that partially responds to topical steroids. And we're talking about diflupredinate, not any, you know, topical prednisolone. We're talking about hardcore stuff, but hasn't fully responded. What's, what's going through your mind? How do you evaluate that patient? What do you do for that patient? John, are we talking about somebody who's, who's phacic or pseudophagic? Great question. Let's assume that this patient is pseudophagic at this point. Okay. So, you know, assuming that this is somebody with you know, a lens in the bag, um, you know, then I sort of think to myself that we have the, the full armamentarium available for use. Um, I personally am a big user proponent of Ozerdex or, you know, the 0.7 milligram dexamethasone implant. Um, I tend to have a low threshold for, for going straight to that uh, if there's an uh, incomplete response to topical treatment. Um, I sort of interpolate the data from the point trial, which I think you guys are probably familiar with, uh, which essentially showed that intravitreal steroid uh, leads to uh, greater visual acuity gains than periocular steroid, at least in the setting of uveitic macular edema. So um, when treating these types of cases, I I pretty much try to stick to intravitreal if I can. Um, And then, you know, nowadays I'm often thinking down the road about a long-term management and uh, what what we're going to have to do to keep the macular edema under control because we all know that you know if we let the macula continue to swell and detergest and swell and detergest that's that's not good for for photoreceptors over time so I'm thinking about you know longer acting implants and whether or not you know a single injection is is going to be enough to to keep the problem at bay long term. We'll we'll get into that in just a bit because that's a fascinating area. Um, a question for you is is in this scenario, you know, postoperative edema, how do you justify or get something like a dexamethasone implant paid for? You know, I think if if we get into the the details of of coding and and diagnosis, um, 
you know, things, things, like you said, get a little bit complicated. I personally uh, will use the other chorioretinal inflammations diagnosis code, um, which is H30.891 for the right eye and 892 for the left. Um, you know, I think that the actual source of inflammation is probably more in the anterior segment, you know, the iris and ciliary body. And I think those are tissues that are releasing inflammatory cytokines and then those cytokines are then secondarily leading to increased vascular permeability within the macula. Um, so I don't know that you have roidal inflammation per se, but you know, you've got swollen retina and uh, luckily I haven't had any issues uh, going that route. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that's where the switch really flipped for me is realizing that this is an inflammatory condition and not just a generic, you know, CME, more of a, that CME is more of a finding than it is an actual cause. Kat, uh, Brian alluded to the pseudophagic patient. What do you do in the phagic patient? Yeah, I think it's a little bit more complicated in those patients because, you know, we always think about like, you know, risk of sort of the cataract worsening. You know, I think the patient population we're talking about here, like patients who have already had retina surgery, I mean, hopefully we've done a good job of letting them know that part of the process of having retina surgery means that they're going to need cataract surgery. I'm actually, in general, for retina surgery, pretty quick to get my patients cataract surgery. I think it just gives them um, sort of the best chance of getting the most vision back. Um, and then, you know, if you end up in the scenario where you have sort of swelling that continues on, it just gives you a lot sort of more flexibility. So I wouldn't say necessarily that it um, sort of changes my management too much, but I'm, I'm just really um, quick to sort of tell them, you know, like, I think you're going to need cataract surgery and maybe sort of just accepting that this might be accelerated while we're sort of controlling the retina. But um, I really like the points that Brian mentioned. And, you know, when I'm taking a look at these patients on exam, I'm just really looking for, is there any vitreous cell that's left over? You know, is there anterior cell? Like those are sorts of things I think as you're seeing these patients to carefully look for and sort of document it can help you with sort of um, giving yourself as many tools in your toolbox available to be able to use. Is there a role cap for fluorescein angiography in these patients? I think so. Um, I mean, as you sort of alluded to, you know, these are patients who really do have uveitis and you want to make sure, like, at least I want to make sure that I'm not missing something else that's going on. You know, um, you know, I want to make sure that someone doesn't have like a vasculitis that like I missed or was something that was sort of sort of indolently going along, I wanna make sure that, you know, I'm not missing sort of an infectious process. I, I wanna sort of just see that there's, you know, signs of sort of inflammation just generally there. So I think it can be helpful to get sort of an FA in these patients. Cause, you know, thankfully they're not our typical like post-surgical patient, but you know, there, there are ones that are often the most difficult to sort of manage um, because we think we fix them by doing surgery and you know, unfortunately, little things keep popping up that we need to control in order to get them the best vision possible. And Brian, what about a laboratory workup? Do these patients deserve a laboratory workup? So for me, I think it's difficult to rationalize if, if there isn't clear evidence of, of actual anterior chamber or vitreous cell. Um, obviously, there are other uveitic processes that may not manifest uh, in that way um, that you might pick up on through angiography. Um, I'll just give one quick example. Um, I had a patient that one of my partners was taking care of after uh, vitrectomy for regimentogenous retinal detachment. And for about six months, she had macular edema that was somewhat difficult to control. And, um, you know, I end up with, with quite a few of these patients because, you know, a lot of my partners will, will sort of think to themselves, well, you know, 
maybe there's something else going on here. Let's let's have Brian take a look. And um, you know, I've had a couple of patients in whom you know we did uh, fluorescein and and indocyanin green angiography and, and found uh, birdshot lesions. You know, where where they're sort of you know clinically occult, uh, but are but are very apparent on ICG. Um, and so I tend to get combined um, fluorescein and, and ICG on, on most of these patients, at least on initial evaluation, just because I don't know what I'm going to find. Um, and obviously, in, in, in those cases, you, you want to get a lab workup. At the very least, check for, for syphilis and TB. And you know, if, if there's characteristic lesions, um, you know, an A29, things like that. But uh, for you know, more typical postoperative CME, I tend not to get lab testing, um, especially if you know, the FA shows a you know typical pattern of petaloid macular leakage and you know some disc capillary leakage. Well, that's amazing. Listen, we're going to head to break here for just a few minutes, and definitely come back after break as we get back with Kat and Brian and talk about how we take things to the next level in those patients that have maybe undergone an intravitreal injection have had a response, but have an early recurrence or persistence of their edema. So please come back after the break and hear what Brian and Kat have to say about that. This editorially independent episode of New Retina Radio is supported by Alamera a global pharmaceutical company whose mission is to be invaluable to patients, physicians, and partners concerned with retinal health and maintaining better vision longer. Alamera, we see more together. Welcome back to New Approaches to Chronic Postoperative Inflammation, a new Retina Radio miniseries. I want to examine this hypothetical patient with our two experts, Drs. Brian Doe and Dr. Kat Talcott, uh, Kat, we'll start off with you. We talked before the break about the, how we manage these, these tougher to treat patients that aren't responding to topical therapies. And but, uh, when do you think about going to something more long-term um, after an, a dexamethasone implant? Like, what are you looking for? What are you thinking about? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. Um, you know, and I think that these are some of our most difficult patients to manage. And we spend a lot of time with them because we just operated on them. And sort of have been following with them. So if drops aren't working, Osrodex is usually sort of my sort of next go-to. I'm trying to get a sense of sort of how much better they respond to that implant than they were to drops. So I'm looking at sort of what the OCT looks like, how much of a vision gain they're getting if they're improving on the OCT. Um, so do I think that the that there is more vision potentially to be gained? And I'm also taking a good look at sort of what the response is in terms of the pressure. Do they need to be on drops to control the pressure? Are they sort of having any bit of a response? Um, and I'm trying to sort of get a sense in my head, is this someone who's going to need one sort of short-term implant and sort of maybe get over this hump of inflammation? Or is this someone who's really sort of setting up for sort of needing sort of long-term therapy? Um, and I, I think I try and plant the seed with the patient too, after doing sort of my first implant, like it's possible that this would continue on. Um, I think compared to some of my uveitis colleagues, and so I'm really interested to hear sort of Brian's take on this, I will typically do sort of more than one Osrodex implant sort of before switching over. I want to get a sense of does the pressure go up at all, you know, 
you know, um, like is, is the OCT still, still continue to improve? And after they need like two, and I feel like they're still gonna continue to need um, something, then I think about sort of more like long acting sort of devices, like a Utique I think is a really good um, thing to consider in, in this instance where it can really sort of provide some sort of basal control um, of someone's disease. And so those are sort of the things that I'm sort of paying attention to. And I also think of, you know, is this someone who just had a standard ERM? Is this someone who had sort of a lot of inflammation beforehand and a big RD? Sort of all those things in my head. And so Brian, when when do you start to think, okay, listen, I might need something longer acting and, and what do you think about using at that point? So uh, I'm going to echo a lot of the things that, that Kat's already said. Um, I personally am a big user of Utique, uh, and I and I use a lot of Utique because I think that these patients are often undertreated and perhaps treated sporadically. Um, we spoke briefly about you know the negative effects of recurrent macular edema, um, you know, and I've I've certainly had a number of patients walk through my door, you know, sort of managed with with topical therapy by the cataract surgeon for. X number of months, and um, you know some of those patients, I'll actually inject Ozodex on on day one, uh, without even you know uh, trying, um, you know the more potent topical therapy. And I begin to have a conversation with patients about longer acting agents like Utique uh, when we're talking about doing that first Ozodex, because I often have the expectation that the problem is going to persist. Um, if patients. Have difficulty sort of buying into that idea, then you know we'll we'll usually say something along the lines of you know we'll we'll inject the Ozodex, we'll see how it goes. I expect that in the next ten to twelve weeks we're going to begin to see a recurrence, and if that happens, you know we can always inject another Ozodex. But you know shortly thereafter we should be uh, considering something a little bit more durable. Um, I, I will say that I've used. Uh, a little bit of Zypir uh, in, in these cases. Um, I think the jury is sort of still out as far as whether or not it's as effective or whether or not it, it lasts uh, as long as advertised or as long as we'd hope. Um, so I can't, I can't comment on uh, my results right now. I don't think that's uh, particularly valuable, but um, you know, like I said, I've, I've injected a lot of Utique and um, Overall, I would say patients have have done pretty well. Kat, you had a little bit of a reaction to Zypir. Do you have any experience with Zypir? What are your thoughts? I haven't used it before. Um, a number, you know, I am fortunate to be at Cole, where I'm surrounded by uveitis people. And um, I know that they've been really impressed with it. I haven't used it myself, but I think it's, it's something to think about. Um, and I really like some of the other things that sort of Brian sort of brought up, I think one of the other things I'm really watching for in these patients and trying to get them to see sort of over time is things that indicate that they might need more long-standing treatment, like fluid fluctuation on the scans, sort of, you know, I try and sort of get a sense from them of, you know, how much, if they have anxiety, if it's going to look worse, it's going to look better, how many times they're coming in. So sort of trying to get a you know, them to start thinking around that we we can reach into our toolbox and maybe treat them better by going to more long-term therapy. And Brian, what if we have that patient that still has some persistent fluid, even with a Utique on board, maybe they've partially responded, but they still have some swelling there. Is there anything else? First off, you know, if, if, we're, if we're talking just corticosteroids, um, what, what I've started doing in a few of my patients is, you know, in, in the setting of 
you know, let's say a, a mild recurrence of CME or, or persistent CME after a UTIC injection, I found that some patients will actually re will then respond to topical therapy you know, because they've, they've got a UTIC in the eye, they've got something that's, you know, sort of releasing a baseline level of steroid and then supplementing with topical uh, for, for some patients is actually sufficient. Um, and, you know, many of them prefer that over you know, going to, you know, going back to doing an Ozodex every, every two or three months, although some people do end up needing that. Um, I have some patients that have multiple UTIC uh, in the eye and, you know, having double the amount of basal steroid release, I think helps uh, a number of patients. Although I do have patients with two UTIs in the eye that still need either topical therapy or Ozodexes on top of it. Um, you know, if, if, You've got somebody who's maybe a little bit more steroid sensitive. I do think that there is a role for anti-VEGF in some of these cases. In my experience, anti-VEGF tends to last maybe four to six weeks in, in these eyes. But, you know, VEGF is part of the, uh, you know, the inflammatory cytokine profile. And, um, you know, it's just one of many things that we see sort of upregulated up in the aqueous and vitreous of these patients. And, you know, luckily some patients respond well to that. So I think it's something to consider. Now that one patient, speaking of using both UTIC and Ozodex, uh, that, that responded to Ozodex, it didn't last very long. So I switched them over to UTIC. They failed to get completely dry on UTIC and I gave them a booster Ozodex and they've been set. It's like, and, and I took some of that from some of the learning we had from Illuvian actually, where we would see these diabetic patients that just needed a little bit of an extra oomph to get over the, the hump. And once you get them dry with that long-term fluocinolone acetonide implant, they're able to maintain that. Uh, one last interesting case, and this is something that I've struggled with on occasion. How do you deal with the patient who has chronic postoperative edema um, in an oil-filled eye? And, and Kat, we'll go to you first. What do you do for that patient? Yeah, I think it's hard and it's challenging. And, you know, you feel like you finally got control of, you know, the patient's RD or whatever, and then there's this fluid that pops up. You know, my first thought, you know, is can I do something to reverse the problem? You know, can I take out the oil in this patient? Um, can I get it out sort of sooner rather than later? But, you know, in some of these people, you know, maybe you tried to take out the oil before and they recurred and now it's back and the patient's worried that they could have a re-detachment. So it's a hard situation. Um, I've definitely used Osrodex with oil in the eye and had success there. Um, and in some of these people, if you're going to leave oil in sort of long-term, you know, it's, it's something to think about, you know, do I need sort of more sort of long-term sort of treatment for there? But, you know, some of these are our most challenging patients. So I'm interested to hear what you guys, how, how you guys approach these patients. I'll admit that I've not had a great deal of success with uh, periocular or intravitreal steroid and um, these oil-filled eyes. Uh, but, you know, having having, you know, taken enough oil out and then sort of seen the CME resolve just by doing that, that's often what I sort of advise my patients to expect um, upon oil removal. Obviously, that's that's not always the case. And, you know, I have, I have a guy who, you know, had a, had a Buckelvit oil for, you know, PVR detachment and, you know, had CME for a couple of months and, you know, oil came out and, CME recurred, and he's he's continued to need Ozodex injections every couple of months. But at least with the oil out, he's responding well to steroid, um, which he didn't seem to be while the oil was in there. But yeah, I I think you know in general, the best thing that you can do is is try to get the oil out. You know these patients have 
you know, reduce effective vitreous volume, you know, whatever cytokines would normally be released are, are much more concentrated in whatever um, sort of liquid phase is sitting between the oil and the retina. So um, I think, you know, in increasing that effective volume, you, you reduce the effect of you know, whatever's floating around in there. That's interesting. I had never thought about it like that, Brian. You know, obviously in an aphakic patient with oil, I'm going to avoid giving something, but I've had good success, Kat, with, with that scenario, putting an Ozurdex in an oil-filled eye that's either pseudophakic or phakic. Uh, and it does seem like it has incredible durability in that scenario, like it lasts a long time. Uh, when you can't get the oil out. I agree with both of you that the primary impetus should be to get the oil out, see if there's a membrane appeal or whatnot. Listen, this has been incredibly insightful and entertaining. I want to thank Drs. Brian Doe and Kat Talcott for joining me on the new Retina Radio miniseries, New Approaches to Chronic Postoperative Inflammation. This miniseries is wrapped up for now, but stay subscribed to New Retina Radio to see what else we have in store for you. And remember, go back and listen to the first two episodes that we had. For now, my name is John Kitchens. Thanks for joining us.